Hello, everyone, and welcome to another captivating episode of The Anthony Bradley Show. I'm your host, Anthony Bradley, and today we're embarking on a fascinating journey into the historical complexities surrounding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in light of the recent events with Hamas. Our guest for this episode is none other than Professor Jamal Ghassim, a leading authority in the field of political science. He teaches at Grand Valley State University. He earned a PhD in political science from Texas Tech University, and his teaching and writing focuses on comparative politics and Middle Eastern politics. Professor Ghassim is the perfect guide to help us navigate this intricate subject. In the next few minutes, we'll be peeling back the layers of history to better understand the roots, challenges, and ongoing dynamics of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So whether you are a seasoned scholar For someone with a keen interest in global affairs, this conversation promises valuable insights that will broaden your perspective. So without further delay, let's dive into this enlightening discussion with Professor Jamal Kasim of Grand Valley State University on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining me again on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show. I am here with a very special guest, Jamal Ghassim, who is a professor at Grand Valley State University to have a conversation about the important incidents here in, 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 our, in our world today and, and particularly what's happening in Israel. So we'd like to have that conversation. So, Jamal Ghassim, welcome to The Anthony Bradley Show. We're glad to have you. Thank you, Anthony, for inviting me. Thank you. So I'm, I'm asking just for some context here to help my listeners understand why this is such a big deal. How do you explain to people what initiated so much of the conflict? I want to, I want to go back to the end of world war two and this interest in resettling a group of, of Jews back to the Middle East. I, I believe, I believe that that's sort of the beginning of, of a conflict. Is that, is that fair? I, I think you, 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 I think maybe you are referring to World War One, right? Because oh, World War One, yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, actually, yes. But but before that, I just want to emphasize um, one. I mean, some you know points here, because I think we have in the West in general we have this misconception about the conflict. We think the conflict uh, is ancient. We think it is, you know, have been for centuries, these guys are killing each other, which is absolutely not uh, true. Uh, of course, uh, you know, Jews and Arabs, you know, they came from the same uh, kind of family, <laughs> Abraham family. So they are, they, they are in a way that they are cousins, you know. And for centuries, they lived together in peace. Yes, there are sometimes tensions happen here and there, but overall, they they have their places of worship. They they have this kind of you know, peaceful coexistence. And when Muslims uh, uh, were the rulers of southern Spain in Andalusia, actually this is one of the uh, golden eras of of uh, the Jewish diaspora. You know, Jewish diaspora actually only prosper in two areas: uh, southern Spain under the Muslims for seven hundred years, and then uh, New York City in the last eighty years or something like that. You know. So, for in the West, actually, you know, you know, the, the, and then another thing that also we we tend to forget is how Islam is closer to both traditions, Christianity and Judaism. Actually, I will say Islam is much more closer to uh, Judaism 
than Christianity to Judaism, and Islam much more closer to Christianity than Christianity to Judaism. You know, you know, Muslims and 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 Jews, you know, worship one God, and the concept of oneness of God is very similar. And also, Muslim and Christians recognize recognize both the importance of Jesus and Jesus as a prophet. You know, and 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 his message and and the miracle way that he was, you know, born. You know, uh, so. And by the way, the Quran mentioned uh, the Holy Quran, uh, Muslims' holy book, mentioned Moses more than Muhammad. Moses actually was the most uh, mentioned names in the Quran, and Prophet Moses, and then comes second Jesus. You know, so Muhammad was the least mentioned when compared to Moses and Jesus in the, in, in the Quran. But for centuries in Europe, uh, Jews live in in in, in ghettos. Uh, Jews being discriminated against by actually by the West, by Europeans, by by the Christians at that time, they suffer just like Muslims during the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, they suffer during the Crusaders' War, you know, and they live in ghettos. And if you look at the uh, uh, English literature, Western literature, you know, you'll find a lot of elements of anti-Semitism. That was not the case in 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 the Muslim countries, you know. So so so. For centuries, and, and Christians blame Jews for all kind of things, you know, when it comes to the, you know, it come to Jesus and, and, and other things, you know, until until recently. But uh, so there is a historical problem for the Jews in the West, and sometimes in the last uh, uh, in the 19th century, uh, 17th century, and 16th century, this was referred to as as the Jewish question or the Jewish problem. Okay, the assimilation of the Jews into European. You know uh, communities, and until nine, until the Re- French Revolution, with the French Revolution, some uh, French Jews thought that they could be easily assimilated into the French society, because after all, the French Revolution adopted secularism, adopted uh, citizenship as a basis of political belonging rather than religion, and you know the weakened, the, they also weakened the the power of the Catholic Church there, but there was an incidence that change the trajectory of this kind of you know uh, process by some uh, uh, european jews to assimilate into european society especially into the most liberal you know society which at that time was the french society which referred to in french history as driver's affair uh, driver's was a younger jewish officer uh, he was uh, falsely and wrongly accused of committing treason and and then this led to one of the uh, uh, French famous writers, Emile Zola, wrote a very uh, uh, important letter to the uh, French president at that time, titled "J'accuse," I believe, in, in French, which means "I accuse," and basically proving the innocence of this younger Jewish officer, military officer, who was innocent, but he was put as a scapegoat. Uh, to you know, to justify the defeat of of the French army in one battle at that time. Why this incident is important? Because this incident uh, changed the mind of the founder of the Zionist movement, Theodore Herzl, who at that time was a secular Jew, and who he was covering this incident. And this incident changed his mind and radicalized his thought in a way that he believed strongly that there is no way that Jews will be assimilated, be accepted as equals in, in European society. If the French society, the most liberal, couldn't accept them, no other society in Europe will accept them. So from that moment, he began to work you know, tirelessly with uh, his new organization to uh, advocate for a homeland for the Jewish people until they convinced the, uh, the British government, uh, Balfour, 
at that time who was the minister of um, foreign affairs and he basically issued his uh, famous you know declaration Balfour declaration which promised you know the Jewish community in Europe a homeland in Palestine that what the, the declaration stated in Palestine and and he said the government of his majesty will use all its best endeavor to facilitate this object but uh, he also made it clear that this should not in any way come at the expense of the rights of uh, the non-Jewish communities, which is very interestingly from the very beginning that the, the, the Palestinians were being denied their identity as people. So this declaration, which became the first legal document in the hands of the Zionists after the destruction of the Jewish temple almost 2,000 years to promise them a homeland in Palestine. And at that time, of course, the British government came and occupied Palestine and after the defeat of the Ottoman Empire in World War I. And, you know, they issued this declaration and they never mentioned even the Palestinian people as people. You, they mentioned Palestine as a land, uh, but its people, the Palestinians, were mentioned as non-Jewish communities, and which is very interesting. And at that time, Jews in Palestine accounted for about 10% of the total population. So because of this, at that time, the Arab leaders, uh, which most Arab countries were under you know, European you know, colonialism at that time, or direct or indirect, with the exception of my home country, Yemen, which was the only independent Arab at that time, 1918, you know, from the Ottoman Empire. So um, they rejected this uh, declaration and they describe it in Arabic like meaning the promise of one party to give a second party something belong to something belongs to a third party. So uh I mean, who, who is a British, you know, at that time government to promise this land, which belonged to the Palestinians, to these European Jews, these are secular European Jews for them who live in Europe for centuries. You know. So they rejected that. But this declaration helped facilitate the massive migration of European Jews to, the, to Palestine. And this has happened in the interwar uh, period between World War I and World War II. What helped accelerate this process uh, were the conditions that prevailed at that time in, in Europe itself. Because uh, in Germany and other places, we see we, we, we saw that time the, the, the rise of uh, fascism, Nazism, strong European, uh, strong European nationalist movements, and many, many Jews felt threatened by, by, by these kinds of you know, radical you know, movements. And that is this work as what we call Bush factors push them to, 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 to Palestine. They sent a delegation, actually, before this, uh, this massive immigration started. The Zionist leaders sent a, a delegation, I think, including a rabbi, uh, some rabbis, and, uh, and they told them the, 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 uh, the bride is beautiful, but she's married to someone else. The land you know, is beautiful, but they were Palestinians here. So for the Zionist leaders, they understand from the first moment that conflict is inevitable. That's why they were very organized. They, they, they have a strong leadership, they, they have vision, and, and, and when they came, actually, they began to arrive, and with this massive purchases of land, they started. In the beginning, the Palestinians were excited about this, you know, uh, uh, European Jews arriving in their, in their land, 
they never felt threatened in the beginning. After all, it happens many times, you know, conditions in Europe didn't work well. Jews, you know, migrated to Muslim countries. When they were expelled from Spain, many of them came to the Ottoman Empire. At that time, Ottoman Empire was just, you know, established, you know. So uh, they welcomed them. But one way they realized that these guys are buying this, you know, uh, they have this massive purchases of land and stuff. They, they realized that uh, this is not just like, you know, kind of normal uh, migration process. These new migrants, they came, they're coming with a project to change the political landscape of, of, of their own country. So tensions began to arise in the late 1920s and early 1930s, and the British government and the pressure from Arab leaders began to halt this migration. So the Zionist leader now blamed them for that. And the uh, Palestinians blame the British government for facilitating this until World War II happened. And we know that during after World War II, uh, during World War II, we know that a huge tragedy took place in Germany, the Holocaust, which led you know countries like United States very sympathetic with with the uh, Zionist leaders. Yeah, so this this is really helpful because I think I think the the, the sort of modern interpretation is that the conflicts began after World War II. It sort of began in nineteen nineteen forty eight. Uh, when Israel was declared a state, and what you're what you're helping us understand is that the Jewish people, these European Jews, were experiencing some oppression and marginalization in Europe. They wanted out of Europe. This was happening well before the war, particularly between World War One and World War Two. They started to migrate in in that region. Tensions were already beginning to emerge. And it began, really came to a crisis point of tensions in, in 19, 1949. It wasn't like it started then, but it was already in play for some 20, 25 years. Uh, absolutely. And actually, uh, when in the 1930s and, and before World War II, uh, the, the, this Zionist leader established a militia called Haganah. And at that time, this Haganah was considered by the British authority as a terrorist organization. So, because they attacked some, some British targets in Palestine. And this Haganah became the, the core for the, what later known as the Israeli army. So what the British did, because now the British was blamed by, you know, and you know that the British government policy, uh, their historical colonial legacy is always about this divide and conquer, you know. So now Palestinians and Jews who live for centuries together, you know, this 10% before, now they are turning enemies against each other because they, they, they and the, you know, this British, you know, allowing at one point, you know, this massive migration, but at the same time, and also the, the British government, you know, there was a, a Palestinian resistance under Al Husseini. They 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 basically suppressed it and killed the leader, you know, and, and I think late uh, 1920s, early 1930s. Uh, but then the British, you know, they realized, of course, after World War II, they realized that they are no longer the superpower. Now we see an emergence. Uh, of a new kind of a political order led by the United States and the former Soviet Union. And with the establishment of the, of the uh, United Nations after World War II, the British brought this issue, the Palestinians refer it now to the United Nations, and the United Nations issue one of the very important uh, resolutions at that time, which basically, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it is Resolution 18 or eight, uh, um, 181. I'm not sure about it, or you know, I'm really not 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 sure about the number. But that resolution 
basically um, divided Palestine into three parts. A Jewish home state, uh, no, I mean a home state for the uh, Jewish people, uh, a Palestinian state, and I think, if I'm not mistaken here, because <laughs> they, they put uh, uh, Jerusalem under, under, under mandate because they didn't know what to do about it. And they gave the, this, according to this resolution, this was issued by the United Nations Security Council, which is an international law at that time, and even today. And it, it gave, it, this resolution gives the uh, Jews around, I believe, 57%, around 57% of the land. And it gives them the most fertile land in the coastal line. You know, so it's given to the Jewish state. And and it gives the so so some of some of the some some of the best land yes was given to the the the, the, the Jewish state yes the most fertile land oh, was given to the, yes. the Jewish state yeah, yes and and I have, okay. have not been to you know Palestine or you know this place I, I have been to Jordan but you have been yeah. there and you know and it is a very small land you know I mean people think in America here. With how big cities, how big Canada, we don't think of land as as an issue. And actually, just um, before I forgot, this issue is uh, a, a, a land. It is a land claimed by two nations. You know that it is a it is a real estate issue. We thought uh, Trump, being a real estate kind of a smart guy, would solve it, but he didn't. He he thought he's going to have the 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 deal of the century. But anyway, so uh, to continue here, you know, uh, where I just stopped before. Um, the, the, the United Nations also gives the Palestinian 40, around 43% of the land, uh, which is not the you know, most fertile. At that time, when this, declare, uh, this resolution was issued by the United Nations Security Council, at that time, uh, the Jews uh, accounted for around 33% of the population. So 33% of the population we're given all, almost close to two thirds of the land, you know, or more, you know. And the Arab leaders at that time, the Palestinians um, uh, immediately rejected this resolution. The Zionists accepted. Now, this is the second legal document in their hand after Balfour Declaration, and this is the United Nations. So they immediately declared independence. And with their independence, there was immediate military confrontations. The, 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 the Zionists were so well prepared for this because they know from the very beginning that conflict is inevitable with the locals. The Palestinians had weak leadership at that time, and they were fragmented, and the Arab countries tried to help. Some of them are still under European colonialism, and they didn't really, you know, and the Palestinians left their homes in what is now Israel, and and in Haifa, in Akka, in many, 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 many cities. And they thought that when the dust settled, they could come back to their homes. This why this explained that now people in Gaza will never try to escape, like, you know, or move out of Gaza. So when, when they escaped, this, uh, at that time, the Palestinians who left their homes and thought maybe a few days they will come back, uh, they were accounted for more than 780,000, uh, uh, um, closer to 800,000 people, close to that number, you know, who, uh, uh, and this is what became now their VG crisis. So their children now, their offspring now, some of them still uh, have the keys for their homes. 
Some of them even left their uh, jewelries at home because they thought this is just a temporary crisis and people will come to their common sense and come back. But when they when when they adopted ceasefire and they wanted to come back, the Israeli army stopped their stopped them from returning to Israel. So this is this is in nineteen in nineteen forty eight yes. where there was this this displacement of of the residents of, of Palestine. Yes. They thought they were just sort of going away for, for a very short time. Yes. They were prevented from coming back. Yes. And that, that's sort of when things even even got more escalated. Is that is that fair? Yes, and, and these guys were still now living in refugee camps. This is when you hear the issue of the refugees and the rights of return. This now, people now, of course, they have more families, you know, of children and grandchildren. I think now, Estimates is that they are around between four to five or more than that millions Palestinians, you know. Okay, so um, that time, you know, close to eight hundred thousand is is a big number for in in nineteen forty eight. You know, so this is one of the issues reaching a settlement is what are you going to do with with the with these refugees? Are you going to allow them? Israel say if they will allow them these millions, that would might you know change the demographic, you know. Makeup of Israel, uh, and, and and we should not forget that Israel today have around twenty percent of its population are Palestinians, are Arab Israelis. They call them. Some of them even are members in the Israeli parliament. They have their own political parties, and they criticize Israeli government freely in 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 in, 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 in the parliament. I mean, they, they are, there's discrimination against them, of course. You know, they, they are not like first citizen. You know, but but still, they have the basics of of the Israeli. Of Israeli citizenships, you know the rights of the Israeli citizenship. You know now when they when they left their homes in 1948, these refugee camps were located where? I mean, did they leave? Were they in Egypt? Were they over in Jordan? I mean, where did where did they go? Do you do you know where they went? Uh, some of them, of course, even came to like West Bank and Gaza and, and Lebanon and Syria. These are the major areas and Jordan. You know. And and of course you know I mean uh, and uh, and uh, I mean some of them spread like diaspora in other Arab countries you know and even to America but they moved but but they they were they were a, a large number of refugee camps still exist today like you know where these people live in 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 very in very you know uh, in very um, not you know great conditions very harsh conditions and and there was uh, I think a, a United Nations uh, umbrella organization. That look after this, you know, this refugee camps, you know. So this is this is this is one of the longest, you know, um, what you call it, you know, um, issue of of refugees you have it in the world today. Yeah. So 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 there has been the sort of refugee issue yes. uh, since 1948. Is it fair to say that what the Palestinians have been really hoping for is a return? of some of those displaced families, even as far back as the 1950s, to the, the very same communities from which they, they left. Is that, is that fair? I mean, I mean, I mean, most of them, they really hope that, you know, and, and they really, they, they, they don't want to give that hope up. And this is during negotiations, there was, you know, okay, because no, I think Palestinian negotiator will sign a deal that doesn't include the right of return. But of course, you know, Israel, for practical reasons, may not accept these millions of people coming back, you know. Uh, so sometimes I think during one of these negotiations, they agree on a symbolic number, like 50,000 or something, you know. So so the leader could say to his people, like, we allowed some, and the other give financial compensation and settlement in other places. But this is a very delicate because 
Uh, I mean, these people, are, this is their memories, this is their life, you know. Uh, Palestinians uh, are one of the ancient, you know, uh, populations on earth. They, they are so attached to their land, like a farmer who attached to his farm or, or to his tree or to his, you know, animals, you know. Uh, so uh, they, they kept, they're still uh, keeping this, you know. Uh, the, the, I remember one time, one time uh, uh, Al Jazeera television newscaster, he's a very prominent guy. And he was, um, I think, talking to a an Israeli official. He's interviewing him. And he said, sir, like, you are living in my home, something like that. Okay. Are you going to evacuate my home for me? So that is the home of his family that they, they left. Palestinians used to be among the most educated people at the time in the Arab countries in the, in the, in the beginning of the 20th century. So 1948 for Israel, they call it the Independence War. And for the Palestinians, they call it the catastrophe, which was like a tragedy for them. So they and 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 the and the Palestinians, you know, uh, after this, uh, they, of course, you know, uh, Holocaust took place, you know, in Europe, not in the Middle East. You know, we all agree that Jews were the victims of the Nazis, you know, uh, racist machine. But the Palestinians feel themselves and view themselves in this conflict that they have become the victims of the victims. And, you know, since that time, their suffering continue. And then we have a brief war in 1956. At that time, the United States played a positive role in this war. Uh, of course, Nasser of Egypt uh, at that time had a military coup in 1952 as a direct result of the defeat in 1948. And, and actually, Israel, you know, Israel grabbed more land in 1948 than what the United Nations gave it to it. In the in the initial resolution, and and where you you said they they grab they grab more land after that 1952 conflict was that land grab in the West Bank was it the Golan Heights where where was no, that no, the Golan Heights and West Bank came later but but I said okay. they did not stick to the United Nations you know resolution you know and, okay and until now Israel didn't have a clear borders you know I mean clear they don't have like okay this is our borders here you know. So uh, they just annexed, you know, Golan Heights, I think, uh, two decades ago. Uh, you know, now they're expanding and building settlements in, in West Bank, you know, which is against international law. Obama, in the last days of his office, tried to put hold on that. And the United Nations issued a resolution in the last weeks of Obama's presidency, uh, reaffirming that these are occupied lands. So basically, the presence of the Israeli forces, Israeli settlements, uh, in these places is illegal under international law, you know. So uh, 1956 was a war called the Suez Canal War. At that time, the British and the French governments came with, uh, they have a triple attack on, on Egypt when Egypt tried to nationalize the Suez Canal. So 1956 uh, war was about the Suez Canal. And at that time, President Eisenhower, who fought in World War II, uh, the last thing he wanted to see is that this European colonial powers coming again to try to control areas in the Middle East. So they issued them a, a strong warning, and as a result, this aggression was halted. And Nasser emerged as victorious here, and his success, his 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 project of nationalization of the Suez Canal was successful. You know, then came 1967 uh, war, which was a huge. You know, tragedy and huge, you know, humiliation for the Arab nationalism at that time and the Nasir. And this war, Israel, you know, 
historians, you know, um, many of them will think that Israel adopted this doctrine of what we call preemptive. For them, it was a preemptive, they call it, but it was not actually preemptive because a preemptive is a very, very controversial doctrine. And we know that when uh, President George Bush used it to invade Iraq, you know, because we don't know if you are really doing this as a preemptive kind of measure, or you already have this, you know, intentions to grab more land and expand. And that's what they did. In June 5th, 1967, Israeli Air, uh, I mean, uh, Air Force uh, basically destroyed all Egyptian airplanes, you know, military airplanes in, 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 in Egyptian uh, military airports and others. And, and uh, in six days, Israel was successful in uh, occupying West Bank, Gaza, uh, Jerusalem, and Golan Heights. So the United Nations issued a resolution after this uh, calling for Israel to withdraw from this occupied land. So when we hear the word occupied land now, it refers to this Gaza, West Bank, Jerusalem, and Golan Heights. You know. that, that war, there was uh, tensions after that, military clashes between Israel and Egypt until President Sadat came and President Sadat he really uh, modernized Egyptian army, reorganized Egyptian army, and they surprised Israel just similar in a similar way to what happened in this uh, four days in Yom Kippur War, which was October 6, 1973. Uh, as Sadat, Sadat at that time, who succeeded Nasser, he adopted different kind of foreign policy. In his mind, he wanted to really reach out to the Americans from day one, uh, but that time, the Americans did not take him seriously. Uh, they thought of him as a puppet. They thought of him as someone who lived under the shadow of Nasser for all these years. Uh, they didn't take him seriously. And at that time, America was so busy with the war in Vietnam. So, so uh, they, they literally told him, unless you guys had a crisis or have a crisis, we're not going to intervene. So Sadat decided to create a crisis for America to intervene because we know that the solutions for this issue not actually go through Jerusalem or, or through Cairo. It also, you know, uh, go through Washington, D.C., you know. It has, you know, all the keys, you know, for, 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 for solving this problem. So uh, he, he ordered his military plan, uh, and he coordinated that with Syria, uh, to have a limited military victory just to cross the, 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 uh, the Swiss Canal because Israel built a massive defense kind of um, line to stop any uh, advance of Egyptian you know, forces to cross the, the, the Swiss Canal. And he surprised them. The element was surprised, was, uh, was uh, very strategic. And, and Egypt succeeded in crossing the Swiss Canal. Uh, and Sadat told his generals that if you give me just 10 miles across uh, west of the Swiss Canal, I could liberate all Sina Peninsula through negotiations. And, and, and that war, uh, America immediately intervened and they had ceasefire later, and, and this is the last major war, actually, where Egypt was part of it. And, and then immediately after that, after the ceasefire talks and, 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 and a discussion that took place about, you know, the possibility of uh, peace agreement, and Sadat again also surprised Israelis by declaring that he's willing to visit Israel and speak to their parliament for the sake of peace. And he said, if I got an invitation, I will go. And people thought he was crazy at that time. 
And uh, even the Arab leaders, nobody really, uh, people were shocked. He gives some of his even minister resigned because of this. But he said, uh, we want peace. And he said, I'm going to come to your country. I'm going to come to your government. And I'm going to address your, 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 your parliament if you invite me. I mean, he, he literally could have arrested in, in Tel Aviv. Because uh, after all, they are at war. There is no diplomatic relationship. The man just defeated them. You know, around like, I mean, just uh, four years ago or five years ago. Uh, so he, he flew with some of his advisors and, and, and ministers to Israel and he addressed. And then the marathon for negotiations started. At that time, former President Jimmy Carter play, played a very significant role in this. Uh, and, 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 and Camp David was, was signed as the first peace agreement between uh, Israel and, and a key Arab country, Egypt. Uh, which basically the idea at that time, uh, land for peace. Basically, Israel will return this occupied land and, and the Arab governments are going to normalize the relationship with Israel. And that was in, in 1979. I believe there's a really famous picture of Jimmy Carter, Camp David. Yes. Uh, with these, with these leaders shaking hands and smiling yes. on, on this, on this agreement, yes. right? Yes, yes. So that, that was that, uh, and that weakened the Palestinians and the Arab leaders at that time had they just, you know, come together under Sadat and Birullah and Sadat, you know, because that was a very skillful, I believe, uh, uh, leader. And, and he's, um, and he's a very, very uh, smart and, and he understands things, you know, he understands the dynamics of international politics. And, and, and at that time, but unfortunately, Arab countries boycotted Egypt as a result of this. And they kicked Egypt out of the Arab League. And Sadat later, within after like two years, he when he was celebrating his victory against Israel, October 6, 1981, he was assassinated by a young uh, military officer, an Islamist, who, who thought Sadat betrayed the Palestinian issue and betrayed the, 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 the Muslim Ummah. And, and they killed Sadat, you know. So uh, I think the absence of Sadat in, in a way, encourage Israel aggressive behavior. I believe if Sadat was still alive, Israel would have never been able to invade Lebanon in 1982. So the absence of Sadat and then his successor Mubarak really didn't really engage a lot. So, so Mubarak only during time crisis. Mubarak didn't have the charisma, didn't have the 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 the, the, the involvement that Sadat had, and Israel invaded Lebanon, and. In 1992, and at that time there was Palestinian militia move from Jordan to Lebanon, you know, because there are also uh, a kind of a local dynamic or dynamics of conflicts, you know, even among you know Arab countries or Palestinians, different factions, you know. At that time, uh, Palestinian Liberation Organization (PLO) was established in 1960s and became the legitimate like organization representing Palestinians, you know, recognized by all Arab countries, Muslim countries, African countries and Asian countries, many Asian countries. And, you know, they moved to Lebanon and there was a civil war as a result of the presence of, of, of the Palestinian you know, organization and Palestinian, you know, forces. And, 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 and they were caught in this civil war, Lebanese civil war. So Israeli forces invaded Lebanon. And uh, two, I think two uh, massacres took place at that time, committed by uh, Lebanese uh, Christian militias against against Palestinian refugee camps. Again, we are talking about refugees here, and 
at that time, after they, 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 they reach a deal, Arab countries reach a deal where uh, Palestinian troops will move to uh, Tunisia and, and Palestinian, uh, Palestinian organization moved to Tunisia itself. And then some forces went to Yemen and Sudan. You know, these are very far from, 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 from Israel. Uh, so the uh, Christian militias in Lebanon, they came and, and basically killed, you know, it was a very terrible tragedy killed, you know, uh, civilians, and, and they called Sabra and Shatella massacres. These are the two, the, the names of the two Palestinian refugees, you know, camp, you know. At that time, uh, uh, Sharon, who was, uh, uh, was a military leader, uh, maybe the commander of the Israeli forces, or no, I think he was a, was a defense minister, if I'm not mistaken. He was found indirectly responsible by an Israeli investigative kind of uh, committee, and and I think as a result he resigned. So so they they they, they held him indirectly responsible because Israeli forces could have prevented this massacre, even though they did not really directly kill the Palestinians, you know, in, in this Sabra and Shatella. So Sabra and Shatella helped in a way to uh, convince many Israelis that this is too much. Uh, we are the survivors of the Holocaust, our parents, our brothers at the time, because this is like 1982, 1980s, and we could we could not allow this, you know, to happen. So uh, there was, we have seen in the mid-1980s or late-1980s until 1990s, there was a strong social movement, I would say, in Israel, from the liberal uh, side, to advocate for peace with the Palestinians. Then, as a result of this uh, Hezbollah, uh, you know, military confrontation with Israel, Israel finally withdrew later, of course, from from southern Lebanon. Uh, now, now, just just to ask one question: uh, Hezbollah is is primarily out of Lebanon. Is that yes? Is yes, that correct? Yes. And and what constitutes Hezbollah? What, what makes Hezbollah Hezbollah? Uh, Hezbollah is 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 not uh, Hamas is a Sunni Sunni. I don't want to you know, you know but uh, the difference may not be important in their political stance because both are anti-Israeli government. You know, and and and, and even though they they may not coordinate a lot, but Hezbollah was formed as a result of this civil war in Israel, Lebanon. You know. Uh, Shia are, 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 has a significant number in, in of, of Shia is a, is a sizable is, is you know minority in in, in, in Lebanon. It is uh, I think it has a strong presence in, in Lebanon, but they didn't have uh, they they used to have a political party represent them, but they didn't have like a militia like the Christian militias uh, like the Palestinian militias before. So they established this Hezbollah as a militia, and and at that time uh, benefited from the Islamic Revolution of Iran. When they came and they began, you know, to get a lot of support from from from, from. and now, especially after the Arab Spring and after its war with 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 uh, with, with, with with Israel in two thousand six, I think they become more powerful and they, they 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 are a key political actor in Lebanon today. You know, uh, and they played a big role in supporting the Assad regime after 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 the Arab Spring and that kind of damaged their reputation. In the Arab countries, you know, because they see it as anti-Israel, anti-Zionism, militia. But when they turn their guns and and they really participated um, in a very negative way in suppressing 
this you know massive protest in 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 uh, in in Syria demanding democracy and freedom under Assad. But that is that's a different story. Okay. Okay. So so uh, with uh, you know Hezbollah came to the, into, into 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 this you know uh, political scene here and became and had this military confrontations with with. With 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 Israeli army, and Israel, what they did, they established a militia that, from mainly from Christian Lebanese to to basically like like you know to um, keep security in southern Lebanon. But when they withdraw, Hezbollah defeated them easily and just just vanished. You know this kind of you know, they call it. Um, I think the, the the army of southern Lebanon or something like that. I don't remember. You know, uh, under under a, a general named Lahd. You know. So um, in the Palestinian side, Hamas, you know, so in 1980s, we talked about the massacre of Sabra and Shatella, but then when Saddam Hussein invaded uh, Kuwait in 1990, in a way to reach to the Arab countries to support U.S. forces, President Bush, the senior President Bush, the senior, promised that they will engage in the in the peace process and with the Palestinians and Israelis. And there was a secret kind of talks in Oslo between Palestinian factions under Belo, under Abu Ammar, and Israeli government. And that led to the Oslo Accord, which for the first time, you know, you see a Palestinian leader shook hands with, with, with uh, the same way that Sadat and BG and Menachem Begin in, and, 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 and the Carter. We see Clinton at that time brought these guys in the 1990s in the White House where Yasser Abu Ammar shook hands with, 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 with Isaac Rabin. As a result of this agreement, Oslo Accord, uh, which is what the goal was to help establish a Palestinian state, this is like a two-state solution, gradually. I started with Gaza, you know, Gaza and later on Gaza Ariha. But uh, Rabin, who was one of the founders of Israel, also was assassinated by a young Yemeni Jewish, you know, uh, extremist. Uh, he's like, I, I believe he was like 19 years old. He thought Rabin uh, basically um, betrayed the Jewish people and he killed him. So we have Sadat basically paid his life as a price for peace. And we have also Rabin here, the same thing in the Jewish side, you know. Uh, the absence of Rabin, I think, uh, created a vacuum in the Israeli political leadership. No strong leader, nobody uh, in the in the in the uh, in the level of, uh, of of Rabin who would make a concession to Palestinians because Rabin could make concession because he's Rabin. He was the one who basically helped. So other leaders, you know, including I think I think people thought Netanyahu is tough, but I think Netanyahu is the weakest leader because you need a strong leader to make concessions. Weak leaders don't make concessions. Weak leaders don't make peace. You know, only strong leaders who make peace. Because to make peace, you have to be very strong with others, you know. And you have to have that, you know, far-sighted vision to understand, you know, what actually, it is very interesting that when I look at Israel, when I read Israeli newspapers, some of them, uh, uh, you know, hold, uh, hold, you know, Netanyahu responsible of this attack directly. We don't hear that here in Western, in American media or Western media, you know. So there are a lot of criticism, you know, uh, directed against Netanyahu than we see here. Here is almost zero, you know, like you don't hear that, you know. So with the with this peace process, Palestinian Authority, Palestinian Liberation Movement came in the West Bank under this Palestinian Authority, PA. And Clinton 
pushed really hard in the last weeks of his presidency to, and, and, and they were close according to Clinton record, and even that was not accurate. They tried to put a lot of pressure on Abu Ammar uh, to give Jerusalem and to give like, you know, and they could, uh, and, and, and I think, uh, what's his name, Barak was the Israeli prime minister at the time, was willing to recognize Palestinian state. But I think I think the 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 record of that piece sometimes you know uh, they blame Abu Ammar, but I think that's not fair because uh, uh, you know they they wanted Abu Ammar to sign on things that no Israeli lead, Palestinian leader would do, which is basically uh, giving up uh, Jerusalem, you know, or something on that side. So so the failure of of Camp David second or Camp David two under Clinton led to the to the uh, to the second Intifada. The first Intifada was 1987, which was a peaceful movement at that time and caused a lot of, you know, uh, political instability for Israel. Uh, the second Intifada was provoked, just like similar this war, was provoked by the uh, aggressive actions of Sharon when he tried to visit the Muslim holy sites. Okay, that is the second Intifada. And as it is now, what was yeah? Now, what was what was wrong with that? Why was why was that? Because it, it seems that there's this one mosque that seems to be at the at the center of this. The the Al Al Aqsa Al Aqsa Mosque, right? It, that that mosque seems to be so much at the center of of these conflicts over time. Why was why was visiting that such a? I mean, why why is it that sort of visiting that area was such a big deal? Okay, Muslims, you know, remember Al-Aqsa doesn't belong to Palestinians. Al-Aqsa belongs to 2.0 billion Muslims. Okay. So it's it's one of the top, yeah, there are three, you know, four holiest sites in, in all of Islam. Yes, there are, there are Muslims have only three holy sites. Only three. Three, okay. Medina and uh, Jerusalem. And the one in Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem. And, you know, in Mecca and Medina, of course, non-Muslims were not allowed. There, this is this is the faith, you know, and in in, in Jerusalem, uh, I mean, if people in, in generally, if someone want to visit a mosque as a visitor, I mean, you don't you don't visit someone's home or a place of worship against their will, okay, you know, that is just like that 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 is intimate intimidation. So uh, Sharon's visit was not like okay, I'm visiting here for peace. He's visiting, let's say, to say, okay, we are here to exercise our right to visit. This is like our land. This is like our place. And this is, you know, okay. So it is a very, uh, I think it is a violation of all, you know, ethics we have about respecting other people, like, you know, places of worship, you know. So so is is it fair to say that, that Muslims saw that as a, a sign of disrespect? Yeah, insult. Insult, yes, right. You know, because uh, you are not invited and, and, you know, even when you go to a mosque, when you go to a place in Islam, you take your shoes off. I don't want to say that as a mirror, no. But, you know, you, 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 you show respect. But here came as a, a person who is very bully, and he wants to bully Palestinians, and this is like our place. And, and, you know, people sometimes forget history. Crusaders came and claimed this right for 200 years. After all, you know, Muslims, you know, kicked them out, Saladin, and, you know, liberated Jerusalem, you know. So Jerusalem now just under you know fell and and, and the irony of this, you know, when Muslims look at this, Muslims for more than three hundred years, thirteen hundred years, protected Jewish and 
and Christian holy sites. Okay, uh, you know the Church of Nativity, uh, this you know the uh, you know this wall, the Jewish wall, and all this you know. Uh, they, they protected. They, they could have demolished them. They could have expanded the Muslim uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They could have, you know. And there was a story when the second Caliph Omar uh, conquered Palestine. This is in the early days of Islam, and the leaders of of the city demanded Omar himself coming from Medina to take to to get the keys of Jerusalem, because you know who is Omar. So when Omar came, went there, uh, he he is a, he's one of the Prophet Muhammad's great companions. And he's a caliph. So when he was one time in a church, there was Muslim have five prayers, and there was a time for prayer, you know, at that time when he was in a church. So the priest, being a nice guy, he told Omar, Omar, you could pray here. Muslims can pray anywhere as long as the place is clean. Like if you invite a Muslim to pray in your church, give them a clean area, they would pray, you know. If they, if, if, if you know, if you give them the permission in Islam, you don't pray. If I come to your house. Let's say even if you are a Muslim and I come to your house, I should ask you for permission before I pray in, in, in your house. So when Omar was in this church and the priest told him, okay, you can pray. Omar said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to pray in your church. Even though he could do that. It is a clean. He said, if I do that, he's one of Muhammad's companions. He's not just an average person. He's one of Muhammad's best friends. You know, he said, if I pray here, then some Muslims, some people are narrow-minded. They would think that, oh, it is the Muslims' right to pray here because they saw Omar pray here. So in order to protect the church for any misconception, so he said, no, no, I'm going to choose another place to pray. So he chose this, what is now the mosque of the Dome. You see that mosque in Jerusalem? So that's the area he built. That's not the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Al-Aqsa Mosque beneath it. So that, that mosque is not a holy mosque, the one that we just seen. That's just a mosque. That was ordered by Omar to build that mosque at that time, showing that respect. So Muslims for centuries, if Muslims didn't really protect this place of worship for Christians and Jews, they wouldn't really exist here. At that time, there was no United Nations, no international law. But in Islam, you don't attack places of worship. You don't kill people in places of worship, even during times of war. Even during times of war. You don't attack people if they are just in places of worship, regardless of their religion. You know, so so uh, you know because one of the golden principles of Islam is no compulsion in religion. You know, so now under Israel here in the 21st century, and we have the Aqsa Mosque is held hostage. No Muslim is happy with this. No conscious Muslim, I would say, is happy with this. And and I think it was it is a huge strategic mistake from Israel to control it. I mean. I mean, you're controlling a holy place for 2.0 billion people, you know, plan to do. And, and, and that, you know, that, I think, one of the huge uh, obstacles for reaching a final peaceful settlement for, for, for the issue. Right. And so, so as, we, as we sort of think, uh, fa- fast forwarding here to the, the, most, the most recent conflicts, I mean, what, what you're laying out is that there has been histories of, of tensions between these communities over land, over holy sites. There's been strong leaders. There's been weak leaders. There's been assassinations. I mean, there's really been so, so many conflicts. And as, as we, as we move to the, the incidents of, of the last few days, what, what would you say in light of all that history was really the, the thing? I mean, what really is, is what, what, what was it or what is it 
that so frustrated Hamas that they decided that this was the time to go ahead and launch this attack in light of all of these issues and all the history that, that we've seen over so many decades. Why, why now? I think why not? Because um, I, this is, a, is, is well planned. This is, uh, I don't think that this is just like an attack came just um, happened just uh, in the last several weeks or months. This is Hamas was prepared to, to carry, you know, this massive attack, you know, against Israel because of, you know, Palestinians for the last 75 years uh, or more, they, 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 they suffer, you know, they, from different rules around the world. Uh, and, and Israel, with the help of the United States, unfortunately, rely on it, what they call qualitative military edge. So basically, this, the, the, this uh, military superiority, they think, will guarantee their peace. And I think that is a huge uh, strategic mistake. Uh, like now, you have a neighbor. Uh, you buy a gun. Your neighbor buys a, buys again a gun too. Uh, your kids don't play with each other. Like look at uh, America here and, and Canada. They are not. They don't even have border security for centuries. You know, if you have a neighbor, it is in your best you know strategic interest to um, uh, to solve your problems with your neighbor. You know, try to cooperate. Try to you know, if you have an issue with your neighbor, address it. You know, don't just rely on. Uh, you know, military superiority. Yes, uh, this qualitative military edge helped Israel in all these wars. The last major war was 1973. But now technology changed. Israel, this is a very small land. So Hamas with these primitive uh, rockets, these are not sophisticated rockets, it's a very primitive rockets. They cause huge damage inside Israel. Okay? Imagine now if it is a war involved Egyptian army, you know, Iranian army, you know, other armies, you know, Iraqi armies, you know. I mean, this would be a completely different story, you know. So I think Israel, I think it will be in the best interest of Israel to solve this issue. Because there are three scenarios here. Either a one state, a secular state, a democratic state, where Palestinians have full citizenship rights, just like Israelis. And, of course, Israel say Israel is no longer going to be have that kind of, you know, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, because you have like between uh, five Palestine, million Palestinians in West Bank and Gaza all together, you know, and 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 if you want to bring, you know, uh, Palestinian refugees from outside, then the number might even be bigger, you know. So that's one solution: a, a secular state, uh, let have democracy. And after all, for example, you have conservative Jews and conservative Palestinians. I'm sure they're going to have a lot of similarities in social issues. Okay, they're almost identical, right? The second solution is, or the scenario is a two-state solution, living side by side uh, with uh, U.S. can provide uh, security guarantees to Israel. You can have two-state st uh, solution, even let Israel be a member in the NATO, for example, okay? So uh, with guarantees, you know, like, you know, like, you know uh, agreement. After all, this, when, when you have a, a peace agreement between Egypt and Israel, this peace, even though the peace in the, in, the, in the official level, not in the popular level, because millions of, uh, the majority of Egyptians, I will say almost more than 95% of them, they don't really normalize with Egypt, with Israel, because they, they, they wanted the Palestinian issue to be solved first before this you know, popular normalization. I think Israel need to normalize with the, uh, the Arab people. 
There are people, not their government, just because sometimes if you have an, a peace agreement with authoritarian government, if the authoritarian government is removed, then you know what will happen to your deal, you know. So that's another strategic mistake of Israel. Israel needs to win the hearts of minds of the Arab people by solving the Palestinian issue. After all, you know, Jews are not strangers. You know, I, I, I came, my family came from Yemen, and I remember my great-grandmother, one time I listened to her, she sang to me Hebrew songs. They grew up with the Jewish, you know, kids in the village in Yemen. We used to have a significant Jewish minority in Yemen before the establishment of Israel, you know. So um, uh, even uh, I, I talked about the common things, you know, even Muslims here in America, when they go shopping, let's say for grocery, they basically sometimes look at the kosher signs, because if it is if it is if the food is good for the Jews, it's good for the Muslim, too. You know, so there are a lot of common things, you know, between 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 these two cultures. So uh, I uh, so going back to the possible scenarios of, of, of these solutions, either one state solution, which um, I don't think that Israel will accept it, or a two state solution which is the official position of U.S. government since George Bush in 2005. And the third solution is what is happening now, the status quo, which is the apartheid. You have more than 5 million people living under, uh, under occupation with no rights, no rights even for movement, no rights even for, 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 for citizenship, no rights, of course, for, for voting or whatever, you know, participating. And that is not acceptable in the 21st century. Where all so, oh, go ahead, sir. Yeah, let me let me let me ask you that because uh, I think I think a, a lot of people may not may not realize this. So, if you are a Palestinian and you're in you're in Gaza, you're in the West Bank, you're actually not technically a citizen of Israel. You okay. can't participate in elections. Is that is that is that fair? Yes, you can't even move. You have walls. You have tens of military che uh, military checkpoints. You know, you know, you know. Gaza is one hundred forty miles square. It is, it is like, it is 25 miles times 4 to 8 miles. So imagine just going from, less than from Grand Rapids to, to Grand Haven, okay? And with, with, with 4 or 8 miles, the, the, the width of, of, of this area. And think about this, you have 2 million people living in this, this, this almost like, you know, big prison. And you are building walls, and you are building all this electronic and, and security walls, you know, between you know. And and if they want to, let's say they have a sick parent or not, they have to get permission. They have to, I mean, you know, it is, it is, they're living, this is not something just, you know, like they just suffered it in the last year. This is for decades, for more than seven decades, they're living under, under this, you know, occupation you know, and no rights, you know, which is, which is, you know, against international law because international law call these areas occupied lands, you know, occupied lands, you know. So what provoked, coming back to your first question about what provoked this Hamas, I think Hamas in the last, starting with Trump, and in the last weeks, we began to see, um, uh, and this is, this is one, another huge strategic mistake by Netanyahu. Netanyahu is very bully, and he thinks that, uh, he, they call him Mr. Security, but now, and, he, and he's uh, suffering from a lot of, you know, legal issues. Actually, there was massive protest in Israel. People forget that. Just against him because uh, even the U.S. President Biden was not really in a good term with him before this attack, you know. So um, uh, Netanyahu's philosophy is this. He can normalize relationship with Arab countries without addressing any core issues any uh, that, 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 that affect the Palestinians. I mean, 
they could so the philosophy, the notion that land for peace that existed in 1979 and that led to the peace, Netanyahu is rejecting that. He said he could have peace, he could have normalization with Saudi Arabia, normalization with Arab countries, just like what Bush uh, Trump helped them to have with the United Arab Emirates without addressing the Palestinian issue at all. So the way to normalization, not through land for peace, but through more coming much more closer to the United States for these Arab countries in return for normalization with with, with Israel. Yeah. Right. So, so what became an issue, if I'm hearing correctly, is some sort of normalization between Israel and the Arab world without having to address the, the issues facing the Palestinians in Gaza, in the West Bank, and that uh, that was untenable. That, that there needed to be, if we're going to have some sort of peace agreement with Israel and neighboring countries, with with Israel and the Arab world, you ha- you cannot do that unless you address what's happening in Palestine. And Netanyahu's government was not willing to do that. Is that is that fair? Yes, that 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 was they trying to do, but this war changed that. I mean, I would say for the short and maybe long term now, you know. Because now no Arab countries will be willing after what seeing. You know, now what is happening against the Palestinians is actually an act of war. Yes, killing civilians, you know, and they, you know, is, is, is condemned in by all those who are this, you know, uh, conscious human beings. You know, we are against killing of any innocent, you know, person, you know, in, in, in both sides. But now when Israel gave uh, a warning to Palestinians to evacuate in, in 24 hours for more than 1 million people in 24 hours, you know? I mean, that's that's impossible, okay? And, and now we see the, the, the casualties in Palestinians. Uh, you know, I just want people to refer to Israeli human rights groups. I want just people to refer to Israeli newspapers. You know, there was a major, I think, Betzal, Israeli uh, and, um, human rights groups documented in the past that for each Israeli child killed, there were four Palestinian children killed. Unless we think of Palestinians as human too. I mean, I, I, I was shocked actually in, in media and CNN, people just talk of Palestinians in Gaza like animals. They describe them as animals. They describe them as, as, as barbarian, you know, even in the highest level here, you know. So these are the two million people there, you know, uh, they should not be uh, they, 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 you know, like now Israel is shutting down, like, you know, uh, water and electricity and this. Even for Human Rights Watch Group, they consider this as a, as a war crime because this is collective punishment for, 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 the, for the millions of innocent people, you know. So there are images and scenes that we have seen in Arab countries, like social media and this. We don't see here of the suffering of the Palestinians. I think now, now, yeah. Now, is is it fair to say that that Hamas is not necessarily the same as the Palestinian people? That Hamas was not always always in control of the Palestinian Authority. At, at, at some point, they emerged. I mean, do, I mean, do, do you think there's a way to arrive at peace? or at least a ceasefire between the Palestinians and the Israelis on this issue without Hamas being involved? I, I think Israel dealt with Hamas for many times through Egypt, okay? And they released their, one of their uh, soldiers, you know. So um, Hamas actually, uh, I mean, people may not 
understand is, but the rise of Hamas actually was facilitated by Israeli government in the beginning. And because they, they, they wanted to divide the Palestinian community and to weaken the Palestinian liberation organization. And Hamas was very popular in the beginning by providing services, like engaging in, in social services, schools, hospitals, and things like that. This is why when we have the first parliamentary elections in, in Palestine, in, this, in, in Gaza and West Bank, Hamas won the election. So Hamas won the election, and actually I think President Jimmy Carter at that time was with the view that people should engage with Hamas. But what happened, they demanded Hamas to recognize Israel. Hamas said, no, we are not going to recognize Israel. And as a result, uh, Israel and the international community imposed huge economic sanctions on Gaza. That started from 2007 and, and going on. And, 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 and uh, you know, Hamas, um, and there was military tensions, military clashes between, between Israel and Hamas. And, and, and then there was always ceasefire. Egypt will, will meet, of course, now, uh, Netanyahu wants to retaliate and want to punish Hamas severely, but I don't know if he can really eradicate Hamas entirely. I don't know how he's going to do that without killing this, you know, hundreds of thousands or, or, or million people to do that, because I, I, I think uh, um, they have strong support in Gaza, you know, whether people accept that or not, you know. And, 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 and while some Palestinians see PLO as corrupt, as weak, as a puppet in the hands of Israel. Some people there see Hamas as the one that who is really defending their rights and retaliating against an Israeli government. So that is just, I'm just giving you the perspective of how, of how, of how people see that. But people forget that sometimes. Uh, and, and, and there is one thing, you know, when Hezbollah engaged in a war with, uh, with, with Israel, Israel withdraw from Lebanon. When, 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 when Hamas started the second intifada, Sharon withdraw from from Gaza in 2005. You know, you know. So when when Sadat had a war with Israel in 1973, Israel withdraw from Sina after peace. You know, you know. So with this conflict, you know, itself, I think there was a prominent um, Israeli journalist. I forget his name. He really wrote a very interesting article just in this conflict. You know, and uh, and he thought he basically called people to be serious about this. You know. And because and to look at the core issues here, of course, he 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 criticized Hamas for its aggressive action and 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 and, 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 and this killing of of civilians. But at the same time, he wanted people to engage and look and try to end this occupation of these you know Palestinians you know land you know this is their future state. So unless we uh, address these core issues of occupation, I think. Either unless you commit another, you know, like, you know, um, a genocide in Gaza. And, and now Hamas is holding these hostages now. Okay. So uh, they said now, I think, I believe around 17 or 19 being killed because of these attacks. Okay. And, and the number might go up, up. I think now, I don't know if Netanyahu will completely ignore the hostage crisis and just, you know, uh, avenge, you know, for this war. I think that so that would cost him his political life in in in, in Israel. Yeah, so we're we're actually having a conversation about a at least a one hundred year old sort of century old conflict in in the region, 
and we're at a, a crisis point right now. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of pain. There's a, there's a lot of, of trauma. I'm wondering from your perspective, how do you think this is going to end? Because as you mentioned, there's a history of some conflict and then Israel will, will withdraw. Another conflict, Israel will, will withdraw. It doesn't seem to be the case, at least in this context, that Israel is going to make any concessions or ha- or any or any or withdraw from any territories. What what will it take for this most recent conflict to end? And and how how long do you think it, it could possibly last? Huh, that is, uh, I mean, I don't know if, if anybody. I mean, because what happened now, nobody predicted. You know, the, the the magnitude of this. You know, it caught us all by surprise. You know, uh, some people thought, okay, we Saudi Arabia normalizing with Israel. You know how this. You know. And actually, I told my class uh, uh, that if that went, because I told them this is like a huge strategic mistake. Israel need to address the core issues. You cannot just kick the can down the road here. Something big would happen, you know. And and actually, one of my students told me it is like a, a prophecy that I said in the class, you know, uh, weeks ago, because this is one of their assignment actually before the war to discuss in a discussion forum. This this process of normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia and and the dynamics of that, you know. So now, uh, I think there is, uh, but I think the problem is very complicated because we have a very weak American leadership, and not just Biden, but Trump, Obama, Clinton. I think the last strong leadership in terms of foreign policy ended with Bush the senior. Bush the senior was, I think, the last. You know, I think because he has a vision here, he managed to bring even Arab countries to kick Saddam out of Kuwait. He did that through United Nations. He did not do that like unilaterally, like what his son tried to do. So he brought the international community, Russia, all these, you know, key players, you know. And and, and, and here, under Biden's watch here, we, we have a crisis in Ukraine. We have, you know, this this is now. And, and, and Biden now... Uh, there is no even call from any Western government for Israel to uh, have to show uh, kind of restraints when it comes to this, you know, attack in Hamas. What's about the, because Arab people are watching. They are watching what's happening in Palestine. And they're watching what their governments are doing to do this, you know. For example, Egypt, Egypt, Egypt now has a huge economic problems, you know, high inflation. The president is, is facing now. Uh, of course, he has a very strong, close relationship with Israel, uh, Sisi. But, you know, there will be a lot of pressure on this to do something, you know. And and, and, and at what cost, you know. So uh, so what Hamas did, you know, and I think I think it's a big failure for Netanyahu. It proved that the Palestinian issues is still alive. And you cannot just, you know, uh, like just overpass that. You have... You have to address it, you know. And it also shows that uh, the occupation of Palestinian land in West Bank and Gaza is very costly for Israel. And this is going to affect Israeli economy despite, you know, you know all, 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 all the help that it gets from, from, from the United States. So the United States government and the solution in the Washington, D.C., the solution for this problem, they need to bring these you know, parties together. Because the United States... Starting with Bush and Obama, they weakened the Palestinian Authority too, and in a way legitimizing Hamas. You know, so the, the United States need to play a, a role of an honest peace broker, bring this. You know, and and you know what, this is this issue has been studied. Jerusalem has been studied, divided inch by inch, literally inch by inch. 
between Palestinians and and, and 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 Arab countries, they wanted to have peace, but Palestinians should have their rights and should have their state. You know, so I I I but I I like to be optimistic. I mean, personally, I like to be optimistic. You know, and and, and the future maybe is bright and, and and maybe you can have peace, uh, but uh, unfortunately, we have very weak leadership here in Israel and I will see also in the Palestinian side. You know. And without strong leadership, we cannot have peace. Right. And so, and so unfortunately, this conflict will sustain and, until we get sort of strong U.S. leadership, sort of strong international leadership to bring parties together, not just for the sake of peace, not just for the sake of ceasefire, but we have to do something with this Palestinian question. We can't just keep postponing over and over and over again, hoping that it'll just go away because the tensions that have gone on for decades and decades and the issues that are decades and decades and decades on have never been settled. And there has been no resolution. And until we can bring parties together for the sake of addressing the Palestinian question, as some would frame it, peace is just temporary, right? It's just a matter of of years or weeks or years or uh, until another generation comes and raises and raises more more issues with those with with, with those issues you know raising raising real, real questions so I want I want to thank you so much Professor Kasim uh, Jamal Kasim uh, so much for this context I think it is incredibly helpful and I hope I hope my 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 listeners have a sense of the complexity of the context. I think I think sometimes people are so quick to take sides, and I think one of the things that's different, as you noted, is that thanks to social media, we can all see this now. I mean that that changes the the dynamics of how people are going to frame this historically. We're not relying necessarily just on journalists to tell us or narrate the story for us. People are on their phones and are looking at at social media footage. Of, of what's happening in in front of them. So I, I really I really do hope that that your students are able to get a a strong sense of the complexities of this issue uh, in in your class. I think this discussion, at least for me, has has really helped to shape my own perspective. The history that you gave was incredibly helpful, and I, I I'm hopeful I'm hopeful that if we get some strong leaders together we can do this if you are someone who's listening to this and you want to be one of those strong leaders uh we we need you right we we need the the world needs some strong leaders to help to help these these conversations toward peace and human flourishing move forward uh professor jamal kasim from grand valley state university thank you so much for joining me today on the anthony bradley show thank you so much Anthony. it is my pleasure thank you so much Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being a part of this episode and joining us today on The Anthony Bradley Show. We are immensely grateful for your continued support and unwavering dedication to our incredible Patreon community. Your generosity and commitment have allowed us to bring thought-provoking discussions to the forefront. Your support enables us to amplify important voices and explore critical topics that shape our world. Thank you for being the backbone of this show. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to be a part of our community, we invite you to like, subscribe, and share The Anthony Bradley Show. Please take a moment to leave a review and share your thoughts. We value your feedback 
and are always striving to deliver content that resonates with you. Once again, thank you for joining us. And together, let's keep the conversation going, expanding minds, and making a positive impact in our world. Stay tuned for more episodes of The Anthony Bradley Show from Grand Rapids, Michigan at the Acton Institute and Kuiper College.